Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We're still very much knee-deep in tech, and this is episode 111. Or as uh, it was said in the, the movie, 111th birthday. It's uh, recorded on the 19th of March 2020, and we are still in lockdown, pretty much. It's It's even worse now, because now even Sweden has closed its borders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not really. <laughs> Since EU citizens apparently aren't contagious. Oh, just like the UK citizens are not contagious for the US? Exactly. Huh, funny that. I didn't know that the virus actually respected uh, country borders and, and nationalities. But then again, what do I know? Yeah, and then, like, it, it's perfectly fine that the virus may have mistaken Italy as a non-EU country. So it, it's it's... Again, the virus started somewhere else, so it's not certain that it understands the concept of the European Union. You know, (laughs) that's an interesting thought, but... I think we should (laughs) try to stay fairly on topic. Uh, We could do a Corona special at some point, but I don't think we should ever release it. Speaking of of Corona or or COVID-19, working from home, what are we... What have we learned? I mean, I have learned so many ways that I can break Microsoft Teams. <laughs> and it's it's like you said before we started recording that it's always interesting to travel with me because something always gets screwed up. And apparently this is all also the case when it comes to uh, remote doing stuff over Teams. Teams and I don't mix. And it's, it's funny because it's true. when I... <laughs> It's funny because it's true, yeah. I mean, I find stuff that you guys never heard of. No. And I mean, why? I'm I'm not purposely trying to break things so much. But yeah. So Well, have you have you found the secret menu in Teams? The what now? There's a secret menu in Teams. Really? Yep. I, I don't remember exactly how you do it, but it's like a weird key combination and, you know, click this eight times and you will get revealed a secret menu where you can do stuff. I didn't mm. know that. I didn't know that either. How cool yep. is that? Yep. I think you should be able to just do like a quick uh, net search and you should probably find the combination of keys you can punch in. So, But yeah, that's something for you to check out later. Definitely. <laughs> so... What what can we also conclude? I mean, Simon and I have been cooped up in the Virtual MVP Summit, and that's roughly 3,000 people in various uh, teams. And, well, we can, we can divide this into two parts. One would be the purely technical, that it is absolutely vital to have a good microphone and a good... Um, set of headphones otherwise it just it sounds like crap trying to uh, trying to do a a conference over your computer speakers or computer microphone is just horrible yeah it just don't get a a, any kind of of microphone or or headset or whatever because it's it's you just need the darn thing and the second part of things is etiquette how hard is it really to push the mute button 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm very familiar with that as well. Uh, there's usually always at least a one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and, and did you hear, by the way, that uh, Chuck Norris uh, contracted Corona? Yeah, Corona is now in quarantine for 14 days. Exactly. That would have been so much more efficient, to be honest. Yes. So where is Chuck Norris when you really need him? Tony, what, what's your ideas on on improving this work-from-home thingy? Uh, well, I've been doing it now for a fair bit of time, so um, I'm, I don't really have those issues that you guys are struggling with now, because I, I'm, I suppose I'm getting already gotten used to it, maybe? Could be, could be. Yeah, just try to have, you know, peace and quiet around you, uh, and things work fairly smoothly. Reasonable. Try to uh, uh, try to avoid distractions. That's what I'm actually trying to say here. But at the same time, and I think that's uh, it could be your cats that would be the equivalent, I guess, Alex. Uh, but I, I, at the same time, so your view in this, peace and quiet, of course. Currently, we are in a situation where a lot of children, especially, but also animals, uh, partners, whatever, are at home. In my opinion, we spend too much time apologizing for things we can't control like if we can begin with understanding that every single person do their absolute best to have a great work environment a quiet environment where participants in meetings will have a good experience if we then end up with children running around uh, cats doing their thing whatever they do uh, better halves uh, coming in and asking where have you put the toilet paper that's fine but i think many people spend too much time apologizing for it and therefore actually making the problem a bigger one so so i would say stop apologizing we are all doing our best be patient uh, respect one another and that's way better than trying to mute unmute sort things out in a quick fix way rather than actually handling it um that that's that's an interesting proposition and and there, there are a few things that I'd like to unpack there. Uh, first, for starters, definitely. I mean, kids, uh, cats, dogs, spouses, whatever, they, as you say, they're, they're at home. And that needs to be sorted. That's just the way it is. So there, there are two other things. One is I need to, to trust you to know that you're trying your best. Because a lot of people, I'm sorry to say, aren't. They just don't care about others. And that's that's a different discussion, but it's it's also an issue. And the other part is, no, mute. Just mute. Do it. Otherwise, I will find you. If you are the speaker, that could be quite a challenge. You can, of course, mute no, and handle mute. it. <laughs> Quiet. Yeah. Yes, that, that's a very good point, definitely. Yeah. If, if you're an attendee, then push that button. Isn't that Beyonce? Push that button? Push the button. I no, it's don't else. know. I'm too old for that. T- too old? She's the same age as you. I highly doubt that. I I honestly think she is. Okay, Simon's going to do a quick Googling on this because I, I highly doubt that Beyonce is my age. But Conne- Yeah, connecting to the work from home thing. So uh, <laughs> uh, I read an article in a Swedish newspaper uh, in regards to this work from home thing, and it was uh, from the perspective of you know ISPs. How is internet de- uh, handling this increased um, traffic 
because everyone is working from home or actually just spending more time at home. And that usually means using more of the internet. So I thought that article was partially pretty idiotic. And my reasoning for that is, well, it doesn't really matter if you're using your internet at home or at the office, you're still using the internet. So I mean, sure, I can agree that there's a slight increase in traffic working from home, and that's solely because of remote solutions, VPNs and stuff. So that might increase the total volume a little bit, but I don't really see like that being an issue in any way for the Swedish infrastructure for internets. So the article was pretty dumb. There are two problems with that statement. Sure. One is the kind of traffic. When people sit home, they start to do stuff like Netflix. And Netflix is vastly more bandwidth demanding, for instance. And the other is the the way that the networks are designed. So in my area where I live, I am fortunate to have mostly old people that are not using the internet the same way as I am. Because I might have one gigabit in my, my um, SLA towards my, my provider, but it's still the same cable. And I am nowhere near, uh, nowhere as near uh, a trunk point as the office is, for instance. So there, there are different pipes and th- different um, cabling. So that's why, in my view, this is putting a strain on other parts of the infrastructure. And probably that is why we are looking at some kinds of, of uh, I would almost say, brownouts in the um, environment we have. And I, and I would also say that there are so many organizations that for various reasons are doing remote work in an inefficient way where they are using VPNs as an example, where uh, they are using client server apps over the internet, where uh, they are sharing files in a completely uh, new way and with perhaps in some cases the wrong tools. So we will be getting a lot. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see an increase in actual internet traffic. Even though I understand your point of view, Tony, I, I definitely see that we it shouldn't be a problem, but it will be since we are trying to apply the same way of working in an office to working from home. Um, as an example, Microsoft just released uh, a white paper or a blog post on how to configure cloud management gateway, something I'll and my colleagues will be doing quite a lot moving forward to manage application deployment, to manage patch management on config manager managed clients that are now at home. That means pushing applications. That means pushing, in some cases, even though that's um, not the most efficient thing, pushing Windows updates over the CMG rather than getting them from Windows Update. Uh, so there are definitely infrastructure parts and design decisions that are based on everyone working in an office which is now applied even to home offices and that's not the most efficient way of doing it and cloud management gateway for the ones who doesn't know it is is a way to enable um, internet-based clients managed by configuration manager to behave the same way as they would on a local area network as an example but it's it's definitely a, a good point, Tony, yeah. and it, it spurs a very interesting conversation. I think we need to find some someone with knowledge about ISPs 
and have this conversation with because yep. I am super curious to know their view on things, not filtered through a uh, a Swedish newspaper. This whole networking conversation actually kind of sort of segues into another interesting phenomena that I ran into with a, a customer of mine just a few weeks ago. So let's, for the sake of the argument, say that we are running something on a VM in in Azure, right? So what kind of VMs do we have? Let's, for, for again, the sake of the argument, just go with a DS V2 series. And and D means the it's it's a, a general purpose machine and the S means that it supports uh, SSDs or, or premium disks. So let's see, let's do a four CPU machine with 28 gigs of memory, not very much memory. And we start to pile on uh, disks. We start to pile on the 512 gigs disks or, or one terabyte disks to get a lot of uh, IOPS. I mean, a, a P30 is one terabyte and 5,000 IOPS. So let's, for the sake of the argument again, say that we push 10 of these and create a, a RAID zero over those. How many IOPS should I get? I have 10 disks with 5,000 IOPS per disk. So 50,000 then? 50,000. How many IOPS do you think I'm going to get from my virtual machine? 20,000? 16,000, if we count in the, the cache size. It turns out that the VMs are limited. The VMs are throttled on IO. And 32K is the next one. That's the 8th core. 64K is the 16. And 80K is the 20 core vCPU. And this means that it's going to be expensive to run a very high IOPS requiring database, for instance. You're not going to do that on a DS machine, probably going to do it on an, an E machine, which is memory optimized. But my point here is that it doesn't matter how many disks you stack on, you're still going to hit the IOPS limit for the virtual machine. And that's independent on which kind of storage you have so if you're running like Azure files, NetApp files, whatever, it, it's still a limitation on that actual VM. Yeah. I mean, I, I could connect an Altre SSD, which has 160,000 IOPS. You're still not going to get more than the, the uh, virtual machine. So that's why you need specific machines to be able to use the Altre SSD uh, stuff. Is this information like widely, widely available when you create a machine so you don't get like fooled into thinking that you're going to get more IOPS than you actually are? So that's a great question. And the answer is yes, it's, it's right there in front of you. But very few people actually read that. And what's even more tricky is that there is no way to tell that you've hit the IOPS um, limit. Because that is not exposed in any way. You cannot see the IOPS of the machine. You can only see the IOPS towards the drives. But what you could do is to just verify that you are hitting it is running um, IOPerf or something that just hammers it and tries to figure out the maximum uh, IOPS rate. Because that is not going to be the IOPS rate of the drives. It's going to be the IOPS rate of the uh, machine. So again, if, if you have a very disk-intensive application, which virtual machines should you use? 
Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, I don't have that table in front of me right now, but if, if you really, really need IOPS, you're looking at the uh, machines that are, are designed to work with the Ultra SSDs, and you definitely need to crank up the number of cores. You're probably looking at ginormous number of cores, and that means very, very expensive. So again, it, it, it comes back to what we've always been saying. Getting stuff to run faster in Azure is going to mean that you have an instant saving and not only by time, you have an instant dollar saving. I'm not following. You just said that if you want things to run fast, you need a very expensive machine. Yeah. So how, how do you how do you sort that? Well, well, it, it's a it's a valid question from you, and and it's a good question from you because if I fix if I, I optimize something on prem, what do I gain? Well, whatever I optimized runs quicker. But if I do it in, in Azure, it can instantly translate to decreased spending. And I think that that's the interesting part as well. I know that's uh, one of the things we're looking at with huge deployments of WVD, that you have some other interesting limitations. I, I don't remember them at the, from the top of my head, but limitations in terms of scaling, limitations in terms of IO, limitations in terms of um, whatever, which you don't hit if you aren't really pushing the cloud to its limits. But you need to be aware that if you were about to run 5,000 desktops in Azure, you would be hitting some limits. And I think that's something we have talked about previously or have been discussed previously in, in, at Ignite and so on. Uh, you could end up in a situation if you, like, like we do now, make a big change and push towards the cloud and you're a huge organization you could end up in a situation where like it's still physical data centers out there with a limited number of cores memory disks even if it's a huge number and you could well hit one of those numbers if you're unlucky I am actually looking into this virtual desktop thing right now. Yeah. Uh, so we, we have planned to actually make a, a proof of concept deployment and just try to feed it out a little bit if it actually works for our use case, which I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely think so. And uh, that's that's the thing I really enjoy with Windows Virtual Desktop as well. It's it's so easy to try out. You could find, and that's, that's what I'm trying to push as well, don't see... Windows Virtual Desktop as something that every single person in your organization, every single app should run on. Find your use cases. Since you don't have any cost for the underlying infrastructure, which you would have had on-prem if you like, we, we have a, a use case. We need to publish um, App X to uh, five users. Therefore, we need to run uh, RDS or Citrix or VMware or whatever and have all that infrastructure set up, which comes with a cost, um, and you would have a really small gain from it. But in WVD, it's no problem to run one user since you have no cost for the actual infrastructure. It's only for the VM. And some additional things that you may need to have to run a virtual computer. And I think that's that's a very good uh, note and something that I really want us to do a special episode on. It, it kind of comes back to not only this, but working from home and doing stuff with databases, it all gets to the same point. You cannot do things the same way as you've always done. And it is, while, while it is 
possible to lift and shift into the cloud. It is also the equivalent of, of trying to force a square peg into a round hole. It can be done with enough force, but it's not going to be as efficient. So it's all about figuring out how to rethink. You know the concepts, but you need to rethink the implementation. And that's what, what can basically make you or break you. So that's something that I want to have a special episode on in, in the future. I think we're lining up a number of special episodes. When we are allowed to see each other again and have a pizza or whatever, we should set in a day to do only special episodes. Oh, hell yeah. That Let's would be great. That. Sounds like fun. Yeah. So speaking again about the cloud and infrastructure stuff, I have another thing actually re related to this. So there is a, a new uh, third-party application that we are looking into. Uh, we want to begin using that. Uh, it doesn't really matter what application it is, but uh, the same principle applies. So uh, the initial bit of information that I got from the uh, developer of this software was that, okay, I will need this information from you. And it took me about 0.5 seconds to recognize that, okay, they are talking about federation here uh, for the authentication parts. Okay, so we don't actually use federation as of today. So the first thought was, okay, well, I will probably need to set up ADFS or something else that can do federation. Uh, but then I thought about it again and actually realized that, hey, I can use Azure for this. Why not authenticate to Azure? It's still the same identity. So I have actually checked it out now on the Azure side. I've been, I looked at that for a few years ago, I think, but I never actually set it up properly, only for like a test application or something that I did years ago. So Azure AD to the rescue, no need to buy infrastructure locally and host it on-premises. We can just set up the Federation endpoint in Azure. This would be really interesting to get both our listeners and your view on. I would say that we, especially in Sweden, perhaps in the Nordics, uh, could be the same elsewhere, but I, I, I have a feeling that it's a Nordic challenge, that we... When we started to do our Office 365 migrations or our migrations to Azure AD, we were so afraid of, of things in terms of who will have my identities and so on that we by default used ADFS. And that's what many ISVs have built their solutions based on that. Yeah, everyone has ADFS and that's what we should be using. But we are slowly moving away from ADFS. Like we or I discourage new organizations from using ADFS for the purpose of um, Azure AD because there are options that, in my opinion, is more efficient. But I discourage from using it. If you have other use cases for ADFS, ADFS as such isn't a bad technology in any way. Just use it for the proper thing. But I would say that we are now in... In a, at a place where we need to start to move away from that, and that means that ISVs also need to do that. Um, so we don't end up in the exact situation that you were describing, Tony, that do we really need to set up an ADFS solution just for this thing? Because that would be moving two steps backwards, I would say. Yeah, and very inefficient as well for a single use case, like like you said. So it's a whole different ballpark if you actually have like, let's say 20 federated applications or something that you're already using for ADFS, well, it's fine. Then you can maintain that installation. 
but but for the love of God, don't install a, like a new new setup just for a single thing. That sounds very inefficient. So I would like to talk about something new in Intune. Which sounds, and I don't know if we covered this the last time. Could have done, but uh, l- 10 days ago or so, uh, Microsoft released a new update to Intune, which enables you to change primary user on an Intune device or even remove uh, the primary user from an Intune device. And this is something that we have been longing for for a very, very long time. Because take this scenario. If uh, we have a device where which is my device, I buy a device of my own and I enroll that into Intune. That's now my device. That's how it's built. That's the intention of it. If you have a device which could be used by multiple people, then this will end up in some really interesting situations. So as an example, you aren't able to install apps on a device which isn't your primary device. Uh, And the use case I've seen and used way back is that we have a school. We have administrators that, for various reasons, need to set up the machines for the students. And um, for other reasons, we we can't use the device enrollment manager or something like that. There are use cases where this happens. So up until now, we haven't been able to have someone else enroll a device for us and then use it as our own, self-servicing us to apps. But now we have the ability to actually change the primary users. So if one person have enrolled the device, without re-enrolling it, we can now change the primary user to someone else, allowing that person to install apps, as an example. Or make it into a shared device. So basically, someone enrolls a device, which should be used as a kiosk or whatever, and we can now remove the primary user, making it into a shared device that could use the Intune device license, as an example. So it may sound like a small thing, and primary device is something we have used in Config Manager for quite a while as well, where it isn't as important depending on how you use it. But this, to me, is a really, really nice change that will help a lot of organizations that, for various reasons, have challenges in terms of how to use autopilot, how to use self-deploying, how to use provisioning packs to actually make things work in a much more efficient way. Even I can see how that opens up uh, a set of new opportunities. Yeah, especially if, like, from an efficiency point of view, instead of reinstalling or re-enrolling a device, we can just repurpose it for another person, which is nice. Yeah, that sounds still pretty much like a feature that should have been there from the start. It's it's such a like obvious thing to be able to do. So it's a new thing now for 10 days ago that sounds amazing <laughs> how come it hasn't been around for years by now <laughs> yeah but i think that that's a quite interesting discussion in itself too that we people are creative we try to use tools in ways they aren't supposed to be used just because we need the functionality and we are it's it's faster to be creative than it is to actually create something uh, so it takes time. Uh, oh, Alexander really liked that quote. <laughs> Let's do a t-shirt. Let's do a t-shirt <laughs> and we're out of time. Yeah, yeah. So we'll continue that at another point in time. Definitely. But we, we have the name for this episode, I think. 
and that was uh, it's quicker to be creative than to actually create something too long yeah <laughs> <laughs> didn't read too long <laughs> exactly oh there we go <laughs> I, I actually called myself simon mr wall of text binder just yesterday no you're the handyman binder Handman Binder. Yes. Damn it, that, Simon. That, that's a book in itself. True. Handman Binder. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a week or so. Until then, have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye now.